got the gold, you go. I got the silver, you go. Maggie Chung got the silver, you go. Silver, you go. Now I'm hearing silver bells in my head, but silver Hugo. Gold Hugo. <laughs> Gold Hugo. The most coveted trophy in the United States. The Gold Hugo. It's award time in Chicago. <laughs> AMC. <laughs> Gold Hugo. AMC. <laughs> Smell the pee. <laughs> it's Joker time <laughs> with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> Can't believe that didn't win the gold Hugo. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you. That's hot out there. That's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me... As always, are Ryan Saunders and Andrew Stasulis. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week and the other two hosts select films in response to that theme. And we come on here to The Gauntlet and have it out. It's episode 74, and it was my turn to pick the topic this week. Uh, And that topic, of course, is Gold Hugo Fever. We recently all went to the Chicago International Film Festival together, as we discussed last episode, and saw EO and had a a good old festival time. Uh, And inspired by that, I thought we could look into the past of our local film festival, the Chicago International. And I asked you to, to bring me films that had won the coveted Gold Hugo, one of the most prestigious festival (laughs) awards there is. We all know many past Gold Hugo winners, you know, some we've talked about on this pod, and I'm sure we'll get into uh, some of that history on this episode, but... uh, I hope one of us are lucky enough to win it one day. Perhaps only time will tell. Uh, So without further ado, why don't we uh, bring out the films, bring out those gold Hugos, and uh, tell me what you picked. Andy, you had the earlier film, so why don't you take us away? That is true. I, I did and do have the earlier film. Um, and in fact, that was part of my 
selection process. Um, I wanted to go back, way back to the beginning and, and take a look at some of the, the, the early days of the festival and, and see what kinds of, of films helped, you know, launch this festival into the stratosphere of prestige that, that Marsh was highlighting in his introduction. And um, the very first film, uh, I couldn't really find much about it, um, but the second film, the film from the second Chicago Film Festival in 1966 caught my eye in part because it is a film, a Japanese film, about samurai well tangentially as we will we will discuss i'm sure but it it intrigued me because i knew nothing about it i didn't know anything about the filmmaker it was someone i'd never heard of and and so i thought it'd be an interesting uh it'd be an interesting watch to say the least and i i certainly think that it was the film is actually from 1963, but I guess it took a few years to <laughs> to make the rounds and and wash up on the the, the midwestern shores of Lake Michigan. Uh, so though the film is from 1963, it was the Gold Hugo winner of 1966, and the film is well, it has several titles. Uh, one of the titles is Bushido, the Cruel Code. Of the Samurai, directed by Tadashi Imai. This film begins in modern day Japan, the Japan of the early 60s, and we have this sort of framing story of a of a of a young uh, salaryman, an ambitious salaryman who is called in the middle of the night to come to the hospital because his fiance has attempted suicide. And he, rushing to the hospital, uh, starts to go into his mind. How did this happen? How did we get here? Am I somehow responsible for driving my fiance to kill herself? And he has to look into the long lineage of his cursed family and their relationship to the Bushido Code. And then this sends us all the way back, all the way back to feudal Japan. And we get the same actor then playing uh, various figures in this family line. And we see in each of the stories, in each of the vignettes, stretching from feudal Japan back to the modern era, uh, a, a very bloody, very violent, very, uh, very cursed uh, experiences with the samurai code and specifically loyalty to one's lord or master. Um, it's a really interesting film. I think that's why I was sort of intrigued by it because it, it has this sort of time element and, you know, I'm sure people have heard me on this talk about, you know, time, space, and memory, and I think this film is a, is a, is a hallmark of that approach to analyzing cinema, time, space, and memory, as Ryan's film, not to get ahead of ourselves, is as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting film. I don't know what it taught me about uh, the Chicago Film <laughs> Festival crowd of 1966, why this particular film hit everyone's uh, uh, button that year for, for 
whatever reason, but um, but I thought it was a yeah, it's a it's a film that I think we're gonna have a lot of fun, sort of picking apart in its various vignettes. It's kind of like a a weird sort of samurai exploitation film as well on a certain level uh, when you consider the content, but we'll get into it all, I'm sure, um, today. So that is the film that I brought, Bushido, The Cruel Code of the Samurai. Thank you very much, Andy. Ryan, why don't you tell us about what Gold Hugo you brought? To the show. Well, I've been lucky enough to actually hold a gold Hugo in my hands. <laughs> Whoa. Including a couple gold Hugos that had typos on them, which was a bit funny. When we when we had the order go incorrect and then we just had, you know, gold Hugos lying around the office that had filmmaker names that were spelled incorrectly. But I remember, you know, thinking back on my experience with the Chicago Film Festival and the experiences with, you know, the gold Hugos, there there was definitely at least one or two years where I felt as though like, wow, that's what got the gold Hugo. Like as if I like felt a stake in it, you know, thinking like, wow, that film, like, you know, I checked out the international competition films and thinking, wow, I can't believe the jury, you know, passed it on to that one. And I guess there was one year, there was this um, lesser seen film from, uh, I believe it was a Kurdish film actually called My Sweet Pepperland that I remember just like seeing on my own at the festival and then it won the Gold Hugo and I thought like, ah, I was so... I was so apt there, you know, I was perceptive looking at the the program guide you and I, it. I chose to go see that one and it won, you know. And now it's, you know, like it's cynical, you know, I think it's sort of a sort of a joke what ends up winning the Gold Hugo many years, but I you know, I will say in looking back at the films that have won the Gold Hugos historically, I mean there's some amazing films on there. And it, it's a really eclectic list that feels at odds with the typical, you know, award season type lists or even just other festivals like if you look at the films that have won the Palme d'Or. There's some obvious ones in there that feel like, oh, sure, that caught everybody's attention that year, yada, yada, yada. Holy you know? Motors. Yeah, exactly. But, like, looking at the list of the, the Hugos, you know, there's some cool stuff. And in one film I had been meaning to see for a very long time caught my eye, and I decided to, to bring it on here. And I'm glad I did. And this was a film from the 1992 Chicago International Film Festival, directed by the Spanish filmmaker Victor Urite, and that is the film The Quince Tree Sun, also known as Dream of Light, and also known as El Sol del Membrillo. The film itself is initially and primarily a documentary, but, you know, Urite is a bit of a trickster and a poet at times, so, of course, the lines become a bit blurred as it goes on. But essentially, the lines that are being set up for this film in this documentary are about a Spanish realist painter named Antonio Lopez Garcia, who is attempting to perfectly capture the quince tree in his backyard during the autumn. He's particularly obsessed with the way the light is hitting a tree, the tree at a certain time of day. And it's only a couple hours every day as he's trying to capture with an exactitude from a very specific perspective with almost a mathematician's focus, this light and how it looks on the tree. And that's really the structure of the film. I mean, we get, it's sort of a day-by-day diary of sorts, both shot on film and shot on video, as we watch his process. And initially, it's really quite fascinating because we're not 
offered a lot of explanations for what he's doing. We're just seeing it happen. And it's only later when people start visiting him and having conversations and asking him about his art that we get an understanding of the method um, to this, if you want to call it madness. But, you know, it is sort of about trying to capture time on a canvas. And, of course, many things get in the way. The day's getting shorter bad weather, we have rain, we have all sorts of things, and, and we'll sort of talk about those. But, you know, it's it's a rare film in a certain respects, just thinking about Victor Arithe. He's a filmmaker that's, of course, known for his extremely limited output. This was his third and final feature. Um, he's apparently currently in the works of making another one and will join the Octogenarian Club, as we discussed last week. He has something in the very early stages of development right now. But yeah, most known for Spirit of the Beehive in the 70s, El Sur in the 80s, and then this one at the top of the 90s. So it's like once a decade for a little bit, we got a special treat uh, from this guy. And funny enough, you know, when I was sort of combing through some writing and the archives on this film, someone who I was surprised wasn't a huge fan of this film uh, was Jonathan Rosenbaum, who just mentioned in his capsule, I wasn't entirely won over by this meticulous 139-minute documentary, even though many of my smartest colleagues were bowled over by it. The Chicago International Film Festival awarded it a gold Hugo. And it's funny that <laughs> Rosenbaum mentions that with this detached quality because Jonathan Rosenbaum was on the 1992 Chicago International Film Festival jury that awarded this film the Gold Hugo. So a bit Dissenter. of an Yeah, you know? So a little bit of drama behind the scenes. Well, knowing uh, J-Row, you know, God bless him, but he he's always, you know the lone voice in the wilderness wherever he goes. So I can imagine him squirming uh, on the 92 jury going like, what about this? Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously. But yeah, you know, the jury itself had a couple notable figures. Cheyenne Benegal was on it, the Indian documentary and fiction filmmaker. And the, the president of the jury was Istvan Zabo, the Hungarian filmmaker. We had talked a little bit off pod about him, but I was, I thought it was funny that Rosenbaum was on it and was like a bit of a dissent. Voice. I have to say, you know, I I get it, but I, I love the film. I thought it was really beautiful. It is uh, kind of funny thinking about it as the ultimate art house joke of a film about watching paint dry, you know, um, but I enjoyed watching that paint dry. I thought it <laughs> to be a very fascinating, immersive and like restorative film. So uh, I'm excited to talk about it. I thought it was uh, well-deserving of the gold Hugo. That one has my stamp of approval. Uh, so that's The Quince Tree Sun from 1992. Thank you very much. I wanted to kick off the conversation with uh, another uh, you know, friend of the pod, Dave Kerr, who of course covered uh, many sifts uh, in his day at the reader and at the chicago tribune and he uh, wrote sunday october 4th 1992 uh, this is his opening salvo in his you know write-up about the film festival he writes is this film festival better than no film festival <laughs> wow such is the eternal question that attaches itself to the Chicago International Film Festival, now in its 28th year of pervasive disarray and unfulfilled ambition. And as usual, the answer is a faint, exhausted yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and so I thought that, you know, is a good uh, starting point. You know, I've seen certainly so many great films at, at SIF mm-hmm. throughout the years, but uh, it's not a top tier film festival. Everyone knows that, you know, in that, in the sense of like, if there is a, a pecking order, right, it's a notch below your Venice's and your Ken and your, uh, right. You know, things it's, like that. Right? Yeah. I feel like one of the things with it is that it's, you know, prided itself for so long as being like the oldest competitive film festival festival in North America. And, it's that ambition, I think, that's like held it back from really succeeding in certain respects as more of a regional film festival. But I do feel like it's interesting hearing that Dave Kerbit, because like from my understanding, it seemed like the 70s and 80s and the early 90s were like the real peak of the festival, where it felt like it had like cultural clout in Chicago, like got a lot of money through like sponsorships and being something that like people actually went to. And that's been the biggest thing, especially in the 21st century. People just don't go. People don't know about it you know there's so many more movies too right right exactly yeah they show they show a ton it's always i mean it's now it's getting shorter but for a while it was like a little over two weeks it was this unwieldy thing of like over a hundred feature films it's like at what at what point does it just become like you got a giant streaming service in front of you and you just don't do any of it yeah and i think to kerr's point but obviously much later than he wrote that that salvo, as you put it, Marsh, uh, uh, a festival that lacks uh, an identity, I think, is a really like appropriate way of putting it. Because you know, when you have as many films as you're saying, it's kind of like, well, what movies does the festival show? Right. Well, I guess a little bit of everything. Uh, but what does that lead to? I mean, I've I've seen I've seen very you know, out there experimental films that really wouldn't play anywhere and, anywhere and certainly aren't going to get any kind of major distribution. And then I've seen incredibly mainstream films, films that do get a bigger distribution. I mean, Marsh and I, a few years back, I remember went together to see Steve Coogan and uh, Alpha Papa and an Alan Partridge <laughs> comedy at the Chicago Film Festival. And I even remember at the time being like, well, I wanted to see this, but what is this doing playing at the Chicago International Film Festival? You right. know, it doesn't doesn't add up. It's just a lot of, it's just a really sort of like a potpourri kind of festival from mm-hmm. from from my experiences in the more recent years. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some amazing films and have like so many great memories of Q and A's and things I've seen happen at the festival, but I've seen some stinkers too, like some all time stinkers, <laughs> just like unbelievable. Like how the hell did this get in? Like what was the, you know, the, the dealings under the table, like for this film, even when I was really young being like, well, you know, what on earth? Um, but it was, you know, it was a really formative thing for me. I started going in high school with my dad, you know, and we would drive down and try and cram as many in, in a day, you know, try and see four to make the trip like worth it down to the city. Cause we'd only go like one or two days pay for the AMC parking. You know, you want to <laughs> see as many as yeah, you can. Right. I also wanted to share, you know, just one more bit from, uh, from the, the savage Kerr piece. Um, he also, you then of course like writes up every movie and, uh, 
has some some interesting things to say. I'll sh- I'll share later about Quince Tree Sun, but he also has a funny bit where he says uh, <laughs> says that the the festival has attendance problems. Quote: Thanks to the festival's inability to promote its offerings, and thanks to the decades of distrust that lie between the festival and its public, burned too consistently by programs that start late, films that don't arrive, and publicity blurbs that are grotesquely misleading. For example. <laughs> This year's handout bedsheet size program schedule describes the Divine Comedy, a punishingly slow, spare, and wordy film by the brilliant but difficult Portuguese director Manuel de Oliveira as, quote, what would happen if the big chill met one flew over the cuckoo's nest? <laughs> That kind of wild misstatement is disrespectful to the film and the spectator, who, having been pandered to and then summarily betrayed, may not be eager to take any further chances on festival films. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, even if I was, you know, alive at the time going to check out, you know, the beloved Manuel de Oliveira, if I had, like, seen that in the description, I would have been looking for that in the film and then probably just felt confused. Yeah, no that's doubt. some wild advertising. Very funny. But, you know, also, you take it all with a grain of salt. Critics go to a lot of festivals. They're very cynical about them. Yeah. They don't, I don't think, perceive film festivals the same way spectators do or even cinephiles right. do, you know? Right. Um, I mean, it's just say it's, it's, a, it's a constant struggle. It's impossible to get people to show up for this stuff. You know, it's just the act of begging people to come to your event. That's like the year in, year out. And I, you know, I was impressed by the hustle because through some research, you know, I, I wanted to find out that the two festivals were highlighting here, 1996 and 1992, uh, had a couple stars, of course, you know, to attract audiences in 1966 uh we've got harold lloyd who came in person and showed uh the funny side of life which was a compilation film made from harold lloyd films and presented by him so he showed up uh as well as uh, otto preminger who got panned in the chicago tribune by the critic saying that he was vague and uh, you know, just kind of German. Like, yeah, he was vague and, and too Prussian or whatever. Uh, and like said it was like a stinker, you know, Q&A uh. basically. And you also had Verna Lisi, the uh, sexy European actress as well, also uh, showed up in 1996. Ooh. and 66. 66. And fittingly, uh, it was at the Playboy Theater. Uh, festival, of course, uh, friends of the festival. Hell Hugh yeah. Hefner, very you know? much so. Yes, absolutely. The good old days. And Hugh Hefner was, of course, in attendance at the 1992 festival, along with uh, someone we've talked about on the pod, Jack Lemon, and Kathleen Turner, and Chuck Jones's 80th birthday party. Oh wow! <laughs> wow. 92 would have been a fun one to go to. Yeah, (laughs) Kathleen Turner was around all the time. Her and Michael Kutza became, like, dear friends. And she she even came by recently. She led a jury, I think, in, like, 2015 or something like that, 2016. Kathleen's always hanging out. I remember she won the Piper Heidsick, like, wine or champagne (laughs) award when the festival was trying to rebrand their tributes to align with, like, that year's sponsor. Was that that given to the, the actress who has, you know... 
drank the most champagne over the course of a career. Because I would, yeah. Then it would be <laughs> Kathleen Turner. Yeah, I think it was her and John Cusack that walked away with like this giant like champagne bottle oh, award. Another <laughs> legendary drinker, yes. John Cusack. Yes. So to bring the films to the fore here, we've been we've been dancing around them uh, a little bit here, just reflecting on uh, on you know the, the the history of the Golden Hugo, yeah. dishing, gossiping a little bit, yeah. <laughs> dishing, you know, seeing what Dave said thirty years ago, and yeah, you know, I, I'm I was really happy with these picks, you know, first off because they were. Not exactly what I guess I would expect from, a, you know, a film festival winner mm-hmm. in either cases, right? It certainly caught my eye as well, Andy, that a samurai film won the Gold Hugo. It's not like samurai films go around winning prestigious festival awards all the time unless they're Kurosawa. Um, and then being uh, the Quince Tree Sun being like a documentary, basically, uh even though, of course, you know, Erythe comes from a more na- narrative, poetic tradition. It's not your tip. Both of these films are not your typical festival fare. I mean, Quinn Street Sun is, but it also, like, isn't. It's usually not the <laughs> kind of film that would walk away with the top prize. Yes. You know, it's the film that would definitely get programmed, but maybe not be respected by the jury in full like that. I think Arithe is a two-time winner, though. Oh, yeah. I believe El Sur he That's won right. at the festival. Yeah, so there's a little bit of that, too, like some alumni love maybe from, from the jury who knew like historically what the festival was like. That's you know an assumption, but that could be part of it, too. I mean, and it's also just a really good movie. <laughs> but, but yeah, too, and again, just to, I guess, circle to Andy's point he made in the opening, like both of these films, you know, if if we can connect them, they're very, very different, but they are both about time. Mm-hmm. And that's really one of the like main elements in both the films, like the 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 use, not just like the usage of time, like any movie, but like meditating on time and using cinema to process that right in the case of painting it's the process it's also the decay of the plants and also by extension human life you know and it it just keeps like outwardly extending into these metaphors when really like most of the film is just like this super short spanish guy (laughs) (laughs) like intensely staring at a tree and then furiously uh, trying to capture uh, its likeness when the, you know, when the sun hits it at this, at this moment. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's his quest is like Terrence Malick shit at first, you know, he's like only going for this like limited window trying to capture uh, and butting up against that. And then of course in, in Bushido, it's like the whole thing is, is, a time and it's like a theme in variation through time, right? It's like every story is the same more almost we'll get into that, Uh, (laughs) but how these things like traverse time. It's sort of like all of those stories are the same in as much as the tree is the same every day. And yet, and yet, you know, because I think it's interesting thinking about the way time is marked in both films where there's the traditional element of time being something that 
is historical, that's logged, you know, in Bushido, because he's commonly referring back to these The chronicle. The chronicles, yes, of like this family lineage and this history. But even then, he's filling in the gaps as we learn that like some of these episodes are not fully rendered in the text and that he admits to some supposition as to what could be going on here. And then the way time is marked in... Quinn's tree son is initially a bit of a mystery, at least it was for me, as to like how what he was doing. Because there almost comes a point where the painter is painting on the tree, it seems, more than he's painting his depiction of the tree itself. And we later learn that these marks, he has this white paint that he puts on the leaves and on the fruit, are his way of logging exactly how much the tree is changing on his grid that he has set up because of like the weight of the tree and just like the tree, you know, naturally with the sunlight and the seasons changing, how it's starting to sink. And specifically too, the the weight of the fruit as they grow more and more ripe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like this visualization of time, this like graphing onto the subject itself. And then in Bushido, right, we, yeah, we have a more traditional look at time through the the texts but then it's complicated by the fact that the lead actor is recurring in all of these episodes as if then time becomes flattened it's no longer something that's in the past it's still something we feel in the present it's almost a a good contrast between a sort of like micro uh a, a, a micro cosmic obsession with time and a much more like macro view of history Mm -hmm. and family and the passage of us of us as people um you know in the case of yeah in in the case of the quince tree uh it's just a couple of months and there is this yeah um documentation of so many days and days in which there's a lot of progress and days which there's no progress made whatsoever on his painting and and so yeah it's 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 like a very intense view of the day-to-day process of trying to create this work or these works i guess we should say but yeah in bushido i mean this is hundreds of years that we're we're looking at compressed into a two-hour time span uh so yeah i think one is is sort of looking at 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 time in a very like grand sense and the other is focused on the minutiae of minutes of hours like you said these small windows of time in which he can suddenly uh, spring to action you know uh bushido is is like trying to make sense of the present through the past and and quince is like this very you know you could almost say yeah like an art house joke where it's like can we make a film that's a race against time but you know we're not trying to save the world or anything like that we're just mm-hmm. trying to sort of like beat the seasons turning or something like that and to capture the present you know mm-hmm. which is kind of amusing when thinking about it that bushido is going at great lengths to explain the present through the past and in the quince tree they're trying to 
create a representation of the present as accurate as possible, even as the present is decaying before our very eyes yeah. to the point where we have to mark the what the present used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the sands of time constantly slipping through his fingers, and it seems the tighter he, he tries to grip them, like the faster those sands simply fall to the ground. Right. I had a really funny, this is pretty anecdotal, but I had like a really funny misunderstanding of time when I was watching The Quinch Tree Sun, where for some reason I like misread the initial timestamp and thought the film was took place in 1993. And because this film makes it very clear what days are happening and we're going through October, we eventually hit December 3rd, which is my birthday. And I was born at like, Two, my mom always jokes, 2.57 a.m., three minutes to three o'clock on December 3rd, 1993, right? But when I was watching it, I had this moment, again, this like big misunderstanding where on December 3rd in the Quince Tree Sun, it's the morning in Spain and it's when he goes and he's like sniffing the fruit, you know, like just before they're about to really all fall and start decaying. And I ran to Marsh's wife because Marsh wasn't home. And I'm like, Kyle, I am being born off screen while this movie is happening, like at this very moment in, uh, in America. But I was... I was wrong. The film was shot in 1991. So the story ultimately leads nowhere. Get wrecked. <laughs> but see, that's the other thing, though, in speaking about time, that, that the way that this film also marks time, aside from the, the titles of, you know, what day it is, uh, we are also treated to news broadcasts of significant world events. Yes. And I think that's also one of the clues because... You know, we're 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 getting like these historical milestones uh, throughout the film that that definitely took place before the the release of of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. There's like the prelude to the Gulf War, I believe, also taking place. Uh, yeah, doesn't the Berlin Wall come down? It's like? the it's the end of the GDR. <laughs> Not okay. the, the Berlin Wall, but the official end yeah, of the, yeah. the, the GDR. But again, that speaks to so much of what this film is about, right? Which is like, you know, there are outside of this courtyard tremendous shifts taking place, historical shifts in time. Mm-hmm. And and we just have this man, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, countries are, are falling apart. War <laughs> is breaking out. You know, people are being murdered. Terrorists are, are, are striking left and right. And he is just just sweating, looking at the clouds, <laughs> blocking the view, noticing rain approaching, uh, and again, just being completely transfixed by his attempt at like uh, freezing all time in this courtyard for the, the moment, the moment at which the tree and the fruit look the most lovely. You, and you can even extend that to the use of music in the film, which comes from his boombox, Antonio's boombox, that he is often, yes, there's like these news dispatches, and it's all like post-sound, you know, so it's just like a creative soundtrack they've mm-hmm. created, but there's a lot of classical music, there's older Spanish music, uh, he sings throughout the movie, he hums and sings to himself, and he also sings a little song with his friend as well, which is a very nice moment. 
parece me porto yo mejor. Cariño, cariño mío, ramito de mejorana, espuma que lleva el río, lucero de la mañana, plante por Sevilla entera, banderas de desafío, y dice cada bandera, cariño, cariño mío. Mejor, ¿no? Mejor, mejor, más. <laughs> but you you do also like get the sense that yeah there's also so much like past the history of art is very present in the film there's ruminations on uh old paintings by michelangelo discussions of old music and again all around you know this singular focus on this present that's constantly being intruded upon by the light the clouds the rain you name it, you uh-huh. know. Uh-huh. It's funny thinking about him singing with his friend because that was such a touching moment. And I tell you, the um, recurring figure through history in Bushido could have used a couple friends like that, somebody to sing with. Because, you know, back to your original question, the idea of, like, how come a samurai movie won the top prize at the Chicago Film Festival? Like, that seems a bit abnormal. You know, my read on that is because this thing is grim Mm -hmm. you know this is an intense film this film's got castration in it it's got sexual abuse it has lots of suicide it has some methods of torture i've never seen before you know and i think that maybe in the way that it was this like deeply serious intense samurai film that is engaging with history on that level. That's certainly something that maybe caught the attention of the jury at the time. But it definitely feels like a film about a bunch of people that don't have a friend to sing with, you know, that you're like really oh trapped God. in like a dark cycle. Well, I think, and, and again, why in my intro, I, I sort of described it almost as like an exploitation film. I yeah. think to that point, it's because I would imagine you know, still in the United States in the mid-60s, you probably have a lot of people who are very unfamiliar with Japanese cinema and, and depictions of, of Japanese culture on screens. And this film really kind of like revels in the more sensational aspects of Bushido code and samurai culture, highlighting the most salacious elements, the most Mm -hmm. violent, the most disgusting aspects, the most, quote, cruel aspects of the samurai, you know, way of of life. So I think that that that's also part of it. You know, it has multiple titles and I'm sure that one of the American distributors came up with the the subtitle of The Cruel Code of the Samurai. <laughs> right. Like this is such a to me early 60s exploitation film. And it even is connected back to what you could I guess describe as a, an exploitation cycle in Japan. There is a cruel cycle in the early 60s, which includes Cruel Story of Youth, uh, the Oshima film, and also Cruel Gun Story, one of my favorite heist Mm -hmm. films. Uh, And they would slap cruel on the title because it signified, like, it was a certain kind of film. And, of course, there was, like, you know, secret auteurism going on in, in some of these films, but, like, they were salacious, they were offensive, they were about 
rape and violence and the horrors of, you know, Japanese society, right? And so, yeah, in that sense, like, to me, this film is uh, like, you know, Yojimbo, but certainly less uh, crowd-pleasing than Yojimbo, is a revisionist samurai tale. The Mm -hmm. whole purpose of the film is to, like say that you know like this sucked basically (laughs) you know like the bushido code is bullshit like it's not honorable it's sad you know it's cruel and every story reinforces that through like you said andy like the most contradictory situations possible that could come out of you know being a part of the samurai class like are seen in this film like there are so many just like I was laughing at the beginning because it's like at first it's like a a samurai will just say something out of turn and it's like his whole life is ruined (laughs) you know like and and sometimes literally like will kill himself because he spoke out of turn you know this kind of intense uh relationship with their lords uh that yeah, basically just is oppressive and bleak and, and miserable throughout the film. And I think ultimately that's what I really appreciate about this film and this take because I am so much more familiar with depictions of samurai as being these incredibly honorable figures of the past, especially in comparison to like, quote, modern society, right? That it's like a lot of samurai films... I think, you know, uh, can, like our films of of the West, the old West, look back on these periods nostalgically or sentimentally or romantically. And this film, you know, even more so than than I think uh, someone like Kurosawa had done with a film like Yojimbo, uh, attempts to sort of like remove all of that, strip it down to it's it's most like horrific it's most senseless it's most cruel it alienates us from this period more than it tries to sort of like envelop us in its grand mythology i was especially thinking about that in its depiction of seppuku you know because i feel like in so many films that detail that process there's either this sort of poetic argument about you know how intensely honorable like it's like the like toughest thing you could do to prove your loyalty and your honor um in certain situations and thinking about it as like culturally like this beautiful thing and then other films that just look at it with this curiosity of like wow isn't this fascinating that like people were so committed and really felt this and i and i felt like i was taken aback by how blunt Bushido felt in terms of it's like, this fucking sucked. Yeah, it feels so pointless (laughs) anytime anyone brandishes the knife and you're just like, for what? Why? Like, this is just such a fucking waste. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's one vignette particularly that highlights the, the sort of like ridiculous aspect of that ritual suicide which is uh i think it's the second vignette where the the whole vignette focuses just on like you said uh this this member of his family being sort of yes like shamed because he spoke out of place and then put under house arrest 
essentially like excommunicated from from the court from from the the lord of the clan and the lord gets sick and dies you know there's nothing very dramatic he's just an old ass guy who gets sick and dies and then we see this series of like hastily like uh you know executed no pun intended like bureaucratic suicides it's just all these sort of like minor bureaucrats in the clan trying to beat each other to to joining their lord in his death and there's mm-hmm. even like a line where where you know the his ancestor says like i must pursue our lord before my colleagues catch up like it isn't <laughs> even about like doing it it's about like when did you do it did you yeah. do it first how quickly did you kill yourself after the lord like died of i would imagine at this point even like perhaps a common cold or something <laughs> right. like that but yeah you just end up like sort of scratching your head and 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 we see like a child you know and these like peasants who are on the road at some point and there's a whole bunch of samurai like rushing off somewhere and and the child's like where are they going what what the heck's going on and and the peasant is trying to explain it to his son like well you know the lord died so they're all going to kill themselves like to join him and and the kid even is like why you know like it doesn't make any sense and it's sort of just left there right for us like yeah it doesn't make a whole lot of sense it's it's kind of like an anti-suicide film, right? Sure. But it's like there's just so much suicide in it. But it's really this kind of like, you know, suicide is bad. We shouldn't do this. And it, it, it opens with an attempted suicide that we're trying to make sense of and then like roots it in all of these uh you know, ritualistic, uh, you know, government-sanctioned suicides at the heart of of Japanese culture for hundreds of years. But yeah, I mean, it's a woof. Like, you know, I, I, for a samurai film, again, like, there are, like, no duels. And again, when people often yeah. think of, you know, the, like, the quintessential samurai films, especially of the 1960s, like, no one is really fighting with honor in this movie. There, there are no showdowns. There are no, like, uh, you know, beautiful displays of the martial arts. It is just uh, two hours of people, like, you know, having a slip of the tongue and then having to, like, you know, butcher themselves just in front of Just throw their lives away because <laughs> yeah. of it. I mean, it almost feels like the argument of this film is the filmmaker just raising his hand saying like, yeah, I kind of think it sucks that our government has normalized suicide for hundreds of years. Yeah. Like, I think it's fucking us all up, you know? And it's also, you know, it's a, it's a very stark dep- depiction of really bureaucracy. And that's like what's so interesting is it avoids... The tip, like you said, the typical samurai beats. There is a, you know, very strategically, I felt like the the first flashback to the oldest ancestor has a, 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 a pretty cool set piece where like things are, you know, there's like a night raid and everything is on fire uh, and, you know, the old ass man, uh, you know, 
He's fighting off the peasant revolt. <laughs> He's fighting off like the maybe Christian peasant revolt as well. Did you notice there was a cross, like a, a Christian cross on yeah. one of the invaders' heads? That was really weird. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> there's some like good spearing shit. Uh, and then you're like, yeah, samurai movie. And then other than a sort of like you know uh, what do you call it like duel for sport? You know, just like bunch of guys training in front of the Lord. Like, right. there's no action in this movie. No. It's all about how power is, like, wielded in domestic life, right? It's not about, like, fight... Oh, being a samurai is about, like, fighting wars. No, like, being a samurai, you're, like, part of the government. You're working f- directly for the people in power, and then you are put in that structure, right? And uh, it obviously is a very cruel, punitive one that we see, uh, and we see, yeah, various kinds of lords uh, throughout, and uh, I don't, not really a benevolent one in the bunch, you know? <laughs> they're they're all pretty terrible uh, in their own ways, and of course, no surprise, a, a, a filmmaker that lived through the Second World War, uh, we're not that far removed, you know, from that, of course. You know, thinking about in Bushido how there aren't that many benevolent lords on display uh, throughout all these vignettes. It's funny thinking about the supposed, you know, quote-unquote benevolent lord in the world of the Quince Tree Sun and our our painter's relationship to God. It almost feels as though he's he's like wrestling with the Lord and like the natural cause of things, you know, whether it's the weather's cursing him or, you know, he, he's, he's losing the light that he wants. And he even has a line at one point when him and his buddy are looking at like an older Michelangelo painting, um, which depicts a bunch of people um, through this like cycle of heaven and hell, souls the Ascending and then like returning down to the inferno as opposed to going up to the paradise. He he has a line that says, "No, I wouldn't like fawning all over God," you know. And you can hear a bit of bitterness in his voice. Of things aren't really shaken out the way I wanted them to, you know. So I feel like in his war with time, it almost feels spiritual at many points in the film that he's both like so appreciative of God's like beauty and grace with this light on the tree, but then also like at war with him. Yeah. I mean, both, both films on a certain level are, are, uh, about characters, you know, who, who are subject to conditions out of their control, Mm -hmm. you know, as like hard as they'll focus on like, doing the, the, the proper thing or, or getting the job done the right way, we ultimately see that, that no matter how hard you try, there are, there are things, whether you want to call it fate or God or a, a fickle Lord that are going to get in your way, are going to prevent you from, from achieving what you want or simply like, you know, moving through life. And in that sense, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that Antonio Lopez Garcia was born in 1936, the first year of the Spanish Civil War, which is to say he was born into a uh, a Franco-era uh, Spain and obviously uh, spent most of his life, you know, in, in that circumstance, right, which, yes, Ryan, may make one resentful towards the church or, <laughs> or that type of God, perhaps, right? 
And I don't think, you know, it's a coincidence, right? We've we've all seen the spirit of the beehive, you know, in terms of the political backdrop of Spanish cinema. So I was thinking about that as well, just in a very, you know, it's not something that's really like dwelled upon. But again, you go like, this is Spain uh, after all, you know. Yeah, I mean, there are moments where what feels like such an insular experience or closed off or just like in this backyard or inside his home that's also like being repaired or worked on by like others throughout we do occasionally like get a little bit of macro when we look at madrid in general like the home city of both the painter and the filmmaker right and thinking about maybe spain on a larger level here of someone trying to capture something so small in the midst of it but i think like as you mentioned danny the the radio broadcasts that are coming through that are obviously added after the fact because it's just too perfect every time they come up there is like that specter of just Spain and its history weighing on someone who is just trying to capture a small, beautiful thing in, in, in the most realistic way he can as a realist, you know? But there are, of course, other, like, political connotations with, like, Spanish realist painting that I, like, can't speak with any authority on as it relates to the politics of Spain, but I know it is, like, something that is an element of it. It is interesting on a certain level as well that, that you know, if you think of his... His focus and his intense, like, microscopic attention to details of light and, and how he designs the painting, it's, it's a very almost zen-like uh, intensity that he brings to it that you often associate with Japanese culture, you know, sure. Zen, uh, and the art of archery, you know, focusing on the, the, the minute details and angles and approaches that you will bring to an activity. And it's like, he has that here as well, you know, that, that his painting is almost, or his approach anyway, is almost like, uh, a martial art in the way that he really, really obsesses over the, mi- the, the, the most minor details. It reminded me of playing sports, you know, certain sports that have like repetition, like bowling or something like that. The way he like attacks this canvas, like in the beginning, he marks where his feet go. You know, he puts spikes in the ground. So he looks at the tree from the same exact place. And the way he like works his the, the soles of his shoes into like the ground, you know, and, and the attention the film pays to you know this this method you know of his like yeah and it's it's reflected upon by uh people who also like come into the courtyard you know even like the workers the 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 polish guys who are just working on renovations in the house like they they step up in front of his canvas at a certain point and they're they they point out like the nails in the ground like he stands right here and like look at the look at the 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 weight he has here set up to to hold his his vertical line in place the same i would imagine attention to like angle and level surfaces that they bring to to the wall that they're constructing or the staircase they're repairing but but yeah you know there are there are multiple people who come in there and and are kind of like wow this guy 
like, man, he's he's kind of extra, isn't yeah. he? About yeah. all this. I mean, I it's really fascinating. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective of this like samurai intensity to the way he's doing his painting. Because again, there's so much about like having such a fixed perspective and having such a method uh, methodological approach to everything. Because even in Bushido, there's one of those great samurai moments that's like the equivalent of like a quick draw in a Western film of that type of precision where one of them is blindfolded and he does attack a signpost and the two pieces of wood that come out are like perfectly aligned. They're the exact same wedges of triangles from the edge of the sign when they pick up the pieces. And it's like, this guy did that blindfolded. And there's something about, you almost wonder, could Antonio Lopez, like, gone a whole day still doing this blindfolded? You know, because of how intensely he was paying attention to the grid that he sets up. Because we should just lay out for listeners, too, right? You know, you mentioned the nails that he puts into the ground so his feet are always in the exact same position. But he also uses this, like, string and a weight, as you mentioned, to set up the quadrants of his perspective. He's, like, controlling his vision. And it's even funny when a friend comes over and the friend's, like, looking at the painting and looking at the tree, and he's like, oh, yeah, I see it. He's like, oh, no, no, you don't see it uh-huh. yet. He's like, put your feet right here and get to the about the same height as me. Yeah, because as Marsh pointed out, he's short, and he's his friend guy. is very tall. <laughs> yeah, he's like, get down on my level. Now tell me whether you think I'm doing okay or not. <laughs> you know, he's like, because it's dependent on this. It's not just what you're seeing. Like, there is supposed to be a precision to, like, exactly where I'm standing, this present moment right here, this perspective. And as the Chinese photographer later points out, you know, don't most painters work from photographs? And he's just like, whatever. Uh This is what I do. Like, I look at the actual object, you know? Uh, I look at it directly. And that's also part of his problem in this, like, race against time. He's basically starting it too late in the season. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, but I also feel like, yeah, it's almost like a game for him as well to... Uh, yeah, you know, work up this intensity and this yeah. like passion. You did, know? did either of you catch? Did did they say he's done this multiple years? Like this is a recurring project he's attempted and has third, failed. No, he didn't fail. It's this is the third time that he's painted the Quince tree, okay. and that's that's that. You know, gotcha. but like before. I think the implication is like he's, of course, trying something different, right? Mm-hmm. And he keeps returning to when the when the sun hits the top of the tree. Like he has like a very specific moment that he wants initially to capture. And obviously, I think like that's not what the other two paintings of the tree are. They're right. probably in right. different light or whatever. But also he makes the point when... You know, the season does start to to beat him to the finish line. Uh, and and he he realizes that that he's gonna have to scrap his plan of of painting the tree because he won't actually be able to capture that light that you're describing, that the 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 light is gone, that light that he wanted. Like the sun shifts and moves, the planet turns, right? He he cannot uh, freeze that sunlight in place uh, that he's sort of like, 
going to throw away the painting. Like, that's it. I tried. I'm done with it. And, and someone's like, but can't you just wait? Can't you just wait till spring? Can't you just come back to it? And he, he kind of looks at the person and sort of like laughs. And he's like, it, the tree is going to be a totally different tree. Then, right? It isn't yeah. just yeah. about the sunlight, but that, that like there'll be different fruit on the trees. These, these quints are going to fall off the tree. It won't be the same tree. It won't be the same painting. Like it was this tree as his other two previous attempts were the same tree, but different, right? So yeah, he, he's also like sort of, you know, every time he looks at that tree, it's different. It moves, it changes, it grows, the leaves fall off, new leaves grow. It's, it's, it's a, a cycle of, of growth and death. And again, I think that's a huge part of what mm -hmm. the film is about, the cycle of life more broadly speaking. I found myself strangely moved too about how willing he was to change his strategy and even the painting itself based on like understanding the present in a different way and also just responding to the feedback of people he trusts. Because when you really start to feel that time is slipping away and that the rain is affecting what he's able to depict he has his buddy come over and they're looking at it and if i remember correctly they changed the horizon line yeah. he's like you know what do you think like should i have left more room at the top like do i need to just shift this whole thing down and his buddy's kind of like yeah maybe you know and he's like okay you're right let's do it and he and the the buddy's like no you know like look how much you've got done he's like nah just, nah we're, we'll just we'll do it you're right you know like I, now that i see it i'm looking here like, I misread the present. And they draw a line through it. They change the horizon line of the picture. And I remember feeling like, oh, God, you know? Like, you're already running out of time, and now you're really losing it. But then it makes you think about, like, well, what is all of this? Is it just what we're left with? Is it the process? Is it understanding just how we respond to the world around us? There's so much in that moment of changing the horizon line of the picture that because of the simplicity of the film, I was just overwhelmed by. Yeah, again, that's why for me, it's like, uh, I think it's a, it's a very apt comparison to the process of martial arts. It isn't about mm -hmm. whether or not you win the tournament. It's about your growth and your journey and essentially your practice it's the love of the game more mm -hmm. than it is chasing trophies so yeah for him he handles these these dramatic turns and shifts and and uh resets very stoically because mm -hmm. it's a lifelong process for him right it, it's absolutely the process uh, hey, look, if this doesn't work out, I, wh wh what's the worst thing that happens to me? I get to, to paint some more. I get to paint again. <laughs> I, get right. to, I get to try a different approach. And, and through that constant uh, willingness, I feel, on his part, his enthusiasm for you know, changing things up, trying again, starting over, like we really do see that, that he's, not, he's not doing this because he has to. He's doing this because he wants to, because he loves doing it. And I think that's what I find as, 
as as a person who at times you know wishes he was more creative or prolific in his creativity like so much inspiration of Mm -hmm. just sort of looking at him and being like yeah my god he's not doing it for some sort of end result or some some deadline even though we're thinking of it as a deadline because we're like it's winter almost man you know like he's just kind of like well and so what it's fucking winter i'll go paint something else i'll try something else right the tree will be here next spring and it'll be a totally different tree and i get to start all over well part of it too is that he is on the older end you know of of his life he's in his 60s which him and his friend remark on you know they're not exactly spring chicken penniless painters (laughs) anymore and you're right andy he says to the to the chinese uh painter being close to the tree that is more important than the end result. Yeah. Bueno, pero yo pienso que lo maravilloso es estar junto al árbol, ¿no? Está solo, yo creo que mucho más importante que el resultado. Y la fotografía no te da eso. And when pressed about this, you know, he he speaks like a, a veteran of painting, right? He he basically is like, I follow the tree, you know, like painting has limitations. And he has a whole spiel about you always have to give something up. It all changes too rapidly. Like it can can't be perfect. Even though he's seeking, of course, you know, some kind of perfection, but it's like yeah, it reminds me of what his buddy says when he mentions he's got like this smoking hot lady for a model for this like nude he's doing. And he's like, if I could just get 70% of what this woman like evokes in her body, like I will have considered my painting a success. Yeah. You know? Look, this to me was a movie. Uh, not about painting, about uh, uh, making this this beautiful painting. This, to me, was a movie about a guy that likes to sit outside and smoke oh, yeah. and listen to music <laughs> yeah. and look at a damn tree and just appreciate the goddamn nature in front of him while, as we've mentioned, these radio broadcasts are, are illustrating nothing but, like, you know, violence and death and war and, and, and huge political upheavals, like, outside of his courtyard. Like, in here, everything is sort of just really nice and pleasant, you know? There's and so, tranquility and peace, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's really just, yeah, this guy sitting here, and, and I, it really struck me when he just was, like, you know, early on staring at the tree and the and the fruit on it and just saying like, man, it's lovely. He's not thinking about his painting. He's thinking about the, the fucking tree and the fruit and the way the light's hitting it. And mm-hmm. that's what transfixes him more than anything else. You know, he's not thinking about how much he can, how, how much he can, you know, make off of this painting. You know, am I going to be able to sell this thing? Like, it ain't about that at all. Yeah, I love how he is so taken by how notably beautiful the tree is that year because you just it's implied that he's looked at it with a similar amount of intensity in previous years and how like this year in particular like the reason he's so inspired is because of how beautiful it is but even just talking about the luxuries of this man's life right like having the ability to sort of just like stop the painting move on to a new one like what are the stakes here for this guy it's like those are luxuries that are not available to our boys in bushido even like a little bit they are like stuck in that cycle of 
servitude. You know, like if they fuck up, they may have to kill themselves. Yeah. Well, again, though, that's like one of the big differences. And it's ultimately, you know, uh, if we're if we're jumping ahead to the sort of like lesson of of the film, like it's it's one of the big issues is that all of his ancestors and by extension, so many people throughout Japanese society, it's like they they can't see the forest for the trees they can't right. they can't think about anything other than advancement and their place in the clan and how they're perceived by everyone else how they're perceived by the lord how the other bureaucrats are perceived measuring themselves constantly uh, uh, among a bunch of factors that they again have no control of like they can't just be be happy where they are happy in in their life and that's one of the the big confrontations that uh, I think Susumo the the contemporary character has with his fiance where where they have this sort of falling out we will ultimately discover over their marriage, their impending marriage, which he's going to delay for, again, you know, advancement in his his company. (laughs) And she's just like, but you love me. Why don't we just fucking get married? Well, we've got to do it the right way. We've got to invite my colleagues. We've got to have the boss officiate the wedding. Like, it has to be public. Everyone has to see it. And again, it's like, uh, you know, for for Antonio in the courtyard, he's creating these incredible works that are probably never going to be seen by anyone other than him or his wife or his friends who come to visit him there. And he is totally, totally fine with that, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that's a, that's a huge part of it. Again, like, I think there's a lot of similarities between these two films, but that they're ultimately looking at at these these ideas and issues like in very different ways, but they're covering a lot of the same ground, a lot of the same territory, time, space, and memory. But also, these to me are just two films about work, about how we work and 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 labor essentially. Uh, and again, like the secret to Antonio is that it's sort of like if you love what you do, you know, it's that that cliche. If you love what you do, it's not work. Whereas for the the men of his family, like it's that they are consumed by the work. They are absolutely devoted to it as as like work and work that's going to lead to a better name, a better advancement, you know, the legacy of our family through through uh, through loyalty and through service, service that often leads to to just death and suicide. You I know? mean, the worst thing that you can do in Bushido is uh, announce that you are going to get married out of love, because then immediately you or your partner will be snatched up by uh, by the Lord uh, and just yeah. completely broken apart. There's like at least three, like you know, like. marriages between people who are like, I love you. We should get married. And none of these people get married in any of the, in any of the situations, right? Because before they can exercise any kind of free will, uh, they're wrapped up in another plot, in another situation, uh, and totally, yeah, just like split apart. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's as if, Anytime you show any type of love or affection to anyone who is not the Lord that you serve, it becomes this 
act of jealousy almost of the people that you are you are serving that they go out of their way to at one point you know literally sever the bloodline you know like there is a moment of castration where you think like this is where it might end you know but the there was still a woman becomes pregnant you know before that moment of course and the bloodline continues but they are like going out of their way to say like no like you you have to be completely loyal and serving us and if you showcase any affection towards anything else, then it shows that your affection is is split, that your heart's not in the right place. You are not honoring the code. I'm glad you bring that up, too, because that vignette particularly is, I think, one of, especially for 1966. And I would imagine, again, for American audiences, yeah, Provocative is, I think, putting it lightly. Yeah, they got the real sicko lord in the Genroku period. Yeah, yeah, because like that dude, you know, a whole, a whole. There's like this whole element of his lord uh, using him sexually. Yeah, he becomes mm-hmm. like his geisha. Like this guy's real, like Epstein vibes. Uh, he even announces, like at the beginning, like. The duty, you know, the duty of a lord is to spend his days idle and drinking. And he's just like this lecherous creep who sets up these like elaborate sadomasochistic fantasies amongst like all his, you know, objects of sexual uh, use, basically. Yeah, which is a nice way of saying like. He rapes a bunch of people, you know? I mean, it's horrible. I was, like, so taken by the framing device for that episode, too, because that's one of the moments where the narrator, as briefly as the narrator, like, intervenes. It's primarily just, like, segueing into each vignette. That's when he announces, like, there are gaps in this story, and I'm, like, going to provide some supposition to try and fill this out and figure out what's going on. And that one's so interesting because it, like, uses the chronicles as like a primary text it treats it as if it's like a just a primary source of research and it's like a line that mentions he was gifted this special kimono it seems like that line is what births this whole vignette in the in the protagonist's mind of like the, it was this like trading of sexual favors like that's it seems like it comes from that you know? and in that section there is a bit of painting as well that takes place so the lord who is who is like taking this this guy you know part of the the clan that we're following over 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 you know hundreds of years in this particular vignette yeah the lord basically just makes him his sexual toy very much against his will but but again, he's consumed by loyalty to the Lord. And he tells him all these things, you know, like, first of all, you should be grateful that you've received the Lord's affection, you know, the, the loving affection of mm-hmm. me. That's how he describes these sexual assaults. But then he he even tells him, uh, you know, you should never, you must never open your heart to women. So he's particularly trying to isolate him from uh, this this woman, this object of of yeah, his actual uh, love. And and there's that scene then where he he paints this like he paints this picture of basically like him and his male concubine like embracing one another. It's this really nice painting, and and he's like, this is a perfect representation of our relationship and my affection and feelings. And then he sees like a glance that's being exchanged between the the man the young man and the woman and then he gets upset and he just like destroys the painting and he's like 
your, you know, you've done this. This is what you've done to my artistic rendering of our relationship. Like some of it is kind of humorous in like him trying to show how ridiculous and petty these lords can be. And, and, and again, like how, you know, devastating their authority is. The fact that like, yeah, you have these, these selfish, childish, narcissistic bastards who can with a, a flick of the wrist you know yes get you imprisoned and castrated and cast out of society i mean it's it's it is like terrifying that that these people have been subjected to it but the point that's constantly being reinforced is that you know uh that on a certain level, not to victim blame, but but I feel like part of it is just that that he's sort of saying, well, you signed up for this, right? You have signed up for this system. We have allowed these systems to perpetuate because it's just one dude. And and we're allowing this guy to 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 have all of this, you know, to to wave these swords over our heads constantly. And later in the film, we even do see uh, a depiction of someone taking, you know, uh, it into their own hands. We see an assassination of a lord, not by one of the members of this clan we're following, but another guy. Mm -hmm. And that's like a very crazy moment where like all of the sudden, you know, there's just, you know, recent gauntlet episode assassination. Yeah. Yeah. The dude had enough. <laughs> And yeah, he comes around the corner and, uh, ooh, yeah, he, he cuts him down. And I feel like that is implanted for us to, to kind of question like, well, why isn't this happening more often? Right. Like, well, you know, we see several guys who have, <laughs> have opportunities, you know, and they choose not to, to take advantage of them in the same way. We also see what happens to the peasants who rebel. Uh, and that's a, another stark reminder of the, the price people pay for their rebellion. Because in the following segment in the Tenmei period where we're following Shuzo, the really great like swordsman, mm -hmm. uh, there's a peasant revolt. And of course, one of the, one of the main things Samurai did was put down peasant revolts oh, yeah. throughout right. history, right? Oh, yeah. And they, uh, you know, there's a discussion at some point. It's like, okay, we've caught the, we've caught, we've caught the rebels. Should we show them leniency or should we saw their heads off? Dude, well, yeah, I mean, it's like, <laughs> that's the thing. Like the guy's like, well, we have to execute a few of them to prove a point. It's like, and, and then all these other guys, you know, below the Lord are like, Okay, well, then what is the method for execution? And he chooses sawing. That's the word he throws out. And and again, like, it isn't just that they're going to be executed. It says they're going to be executed in the most painful, graphic, horrifying way. They're going to be in tortured. In front of everyone else, in front of all the other farmers as yeah, well. Yeah, and if any of the farmers complain, as they say, you're going to be the one that's, like, using this insane medieval Japanese saw. It's like a saw made out of wood. Correct. It's, 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 it's not crazy. a sharp-looking blade at all. Yeah, that was, like, a psychotic-looking saw. It'd be interesting to see the movie made today where they do show, you know... <laughs> What that yeah. would fucking look Takashi like. Miike. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we should talk about the visual style of the film a little bit because we really haven't. And it is, of course, a, a scope 
black and white, very like charcoal, uh, you know, style cinematography. It's it's largely static with flourishes throughout, like the aforementioned castration scene has uh, what I can only describe as Spike Lee canted angles, <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. which was like a really wild flourish because the film is is very well composed and you can tell it's drawing on kabuki, it's drawing on theater the way it's staged. And I know Yorazuya Kinosuke, the lead, was like one of the most famous kabuki actors of the era. So a lot of it is like, watching his performance in in long shot uh, and longer takes. It has a very meditative pace and great use of, like, negative space as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The compositions at times, like, are are very, uh, very intricate. You know, there is a lot of... And I think you see that in a, a grander tradition of, like, you know, classical Japanese filmmaking, you know, an attention to frames and frames within frames and people being framed. And I think it speaks to the rigidity of the systems and the society that so many of these characters find themselves in, you know, that that people are trapped, they're they're quite literally imprisoned. And I think, again, a lot of the, the mise-en-scene, you know, makes this world look like one large prison cell or a series of, of prison cells. That No pastoral beauty of Japan in this film. No, there's like one nice nighttime rain sequence where we get to see water <laughs> hitting some of the leaves, but that's really all we're given in terms of like the beautiful natural world here. And even that, that's a character looking out the window right. at the rain, yeah. you know? Like, <laughs> it's like, yo. It's yeah. true, it's yeah. true. Man, this is a bit of a sidebar, but Andy, have you seen the Tales from the Crypt episode that Russell Mulcahy directed with Brian James that he's like working at a logging. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. That we watched that today. And I like now can't stop thinking about how much it links up with Bushido because it's about <laughs> sure. this like intense jealousy that Brian James is like the foreman of this like crew of loggers has for like his new wife. Yeah. And he's like triggered anytime anyone looks at her. And the film ends with this like horrifying, you know, getting back at the the Lord you're serving by they stick him in a tree and the man who had the adulterous affair with his wife is now blinded and he chops him up with the chainsaw, like the sawing of the heads in this. And um, yeah, the, for those of our listeners that decide to go and check out Bushido, which I would recommend, it's a fascinating film, you know, as a nice like chaser to it, watch the Mulcahy yeah, Tales from the Crypt. second, directed <laughs> yeah. by Mo Russell, the, the god Mulcahy. Like just talking through Bushido now, I'm like, wow. Well, because really they also blindfold like the guy, right? Be well, they put... He's blind. He's blind. He's right? blind. So it's just like in the, Tales from the Crypt. Right. But there yeah. is a moment where, again, in the cruel twists of, of right, right. power, you know, one of these characters is is told, yeah, it's the yeah, it's the same guy. He's told like the way out of your shame is to execute a couple prisoners, but you have to use the sword of darkness. The they call it, darkness. which is which is the the method of martial arts he had displayed so well before, which is being blindfolded. And of course, I'm sure anybody by this point in the film can guess where that's going. He is blindfolded, and then 
you know, in a very impressive display of his swordsmanship, uh, lops off the head of his uh, daughter and uh, her her would-be husband, a man that he did approve of. So, so oh my yeah. God, dude, that's the darkest moment too, because after he's killed his family, he's freaking out and the Lord stabs him in the hand and he goes, I receive it with gratitude. Yeah. <laughs> He, he says, you know, this sword is for you. You know, it's a gift to you. He presents the sword as a present by plunging it through his hand. And yes, receives it with gratitude so that he can then plunge it into his own belly and commit ritual suicide in front of his Lord. And I was like, this is a part where the movie is getting so, I mean, it's been atrocity after atrocity by this point. We're really like wallowing in it. And I did start to like laugh at the, the, the pitch black darkness of the moment where he has that twisted smile on his face, which is the cover of the the, the poster. poster. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is him sort of like looking at his Lord and then like, yeah, with a, with a, with a very like demonic grin, uh, cutting his belly open and, and, and thanking his Lord for it. And I was like thinking like, well, was that his way of sort of, uh, uh, saying like, you know, you gotta kill him with kindness, you know, like <laughs> instead of striking out his Lord, he's like, I'm going to get back at you by showing you like how loyal I am. Right. Yeah. That I, I hope this act haunts you. But of course, Immediately afterwards, we discover, yeah, it doesn't at all. The, the 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 sadness of it, the emptiness of what you know. Again, in so many other films, would be like the 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 grand gesture is just that for this 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 guy in charge, he's just kind of like, all right, cool, on to the next one. You right. know, people are completely disposable in the societies, which again, we see invoked in a very short sequence later on when they get to the Pacific War and they're just like, kamikazes, bye. You know, we just, the whole sequence is just kamikazes being sent off. You know, First it's the like, toast. It's yeah, like having the, their toast. Yeah, yeah, it's just like the bureaucratic routine of it, you know, just like checking in, like, okay, did you talk to you know, your lover, like, oh, I don't have one. He's like, oh, did you call your mom? Like, oh, she's dead. It's like, okay, well, goodbye then. And, and again, like, the absurd humor in it is that I love one of the guys, all he asks him is, did you go to the bathroom? Yeah. Like, did you make sure to go to He's the like, bathroom? I'm good now. <laughs> yeah, before you you try to crash your plane into an American aircraft carrier, you know? Yeah, and that's, and, and yeah, we don't have to get into it, but the previous generation guy died in the Sino-Japanese War. Yeah, unceremoniously. Uh, off, off screen, yeah. He's dispatched of off screen in the Meiji period. And then bringing us, yeah, back to the present, where again, you know, I was thinking about how different this film is from Kurosawa while also overlapping so much with his work because, you know, the present frame story is, you know, the bad sleep well, you know, it's 
the salary man is a, con- you know, or like corporations are a continuation of feudal Japan by other right. means, right. you know, like bringing that into, uh, yeah, look, we, we lost, we lost the war, but like still goes on now it's the corporation it's the big body more than it is some some you know singular lord or god it's emperor. the boss or the section chief that yeah. you have to suck up it's to. the company more yeah. than anything oh yeah because he ends up trying to get his wife to do like corporate espionage or his oh, fiance yeah. she certainly does right and it's just one of the other things where it's like the code of the bushido now existing on the corporate level is still managing to tear people apart in quote-unquote modern society leading again to her attempted suicide that's like both the mixture of that espionage and then the pressures of like how the marriage has to go is what like is revealed at what sends her down that path you know and it's interesting because when the film started i like joke to marsh i'm like what is this movie just gonna be like i gotta look at the history books to figure out why i drove my wife to suicide and i was like wow bold like this is this is like a crazy concept (laughs) i gotta consult the archives (laughs) on this one yeah like what did where did i go wrong and i was like okay dude but like by the end i was like wow this is like a this is provocative like this is an intense argument that the film's making about like look at how the way all of these codes have been normalized and just ingrained in our culture could like still lead to these problems even today. It's just like in a different costume. Much nicer uh, cap to Quinch Tree's son, I'll tell you what. Although, um. you know, I wanted to bring up a, one of the, <laughs> I wanted to bring up one of the darker elements of the film, which is uh, as the, you know, as time passes in the film, Erythe, like, gives us shots, as you mentioned, Ryan, of Madrid at night, and we see the lights, and we see the modern world, right, which seems so funny in contrast to our singularly focused painter. And one of the things that the film keeps returning to are shots of people inside houses and apartment complexes watching television yeah and there is this like specter haunting the film of also again this idea of change uh you know it's the 90s people really care about painting about painters you know that kind of thing right a a passing of you know things that were very important and have become less so. Yeah, you know? and we really see that through his his friend and his, you know, schoolmate, his oh, classmate, yeah. who is just, you know, there were some really touching moments where his friend, especially more than him, seems to be troubled by that passage you're describing. And and he's the one who starts really sort of ruminating on that and and talking about the difference in in art students today. You know, they don't even they don't even call them by their, you know, sir. They don't call them Mr. or anything like that. They call them by their first names. Can you imagine if we did that <laughs> back then? We'd get our gas is kicked, you know, but there's like a really sad line where he's just simply talking about what he misses and he misses the, the camaraderie. He misses being together, you know, that togetherness and, and simply just 
enjoying each other's company, which again reflects on that isolation of people now, you know, having surrogate friends in television, just now mm-hmm. being sort of closed off and locked up in their little apartments watching TV. And he, he has this really like sad line I wrote down where, where he's talking about, um, you know, going to cafes and just, just talking and talking about art. And he says something like, all those cafes are gone now, you know, like these cafes are now closed They're They don't exist anymore. And he's, he's really not just talking about these cafes that have closed, but, but the spirit of those cafes. Yeah. He takes it even a step further. Cause he's talking about like, you know, maybe with rose tinted glasses, looking back at that time with his fellow students, discovering the whole world in cafes, right? But he like caps it off with a line that's really haunting where he says, time can't last much longer. And like, what a loaded thing to say, right? This idea of like his understanding of time, like it's just slipping away. Time itself can't last much longer because of this new world we're entering into. While Antonio looks at the light, you know, yeah. disappearing on the <laughs> yeah. section of trees trying to, to capture, like, tell me about it, brother. Right. You know? And Antonio's also like, uh, I didn't go to any cafes. <laughs> and his friend's like, oh, yeah, I was like eight years older than you or yeah. something. Yeah, there's like, like a little bit of a gap between <laughs> yeah, a bit them of an and age like, gap. Yeah. And that's it, because, you know, he's he's constantly sort of like romanticizing and and, and getting very sentimental about you know, all these things and, and basically just being old now. And Antonio throughout these conversations is always just staring at his subject. He's focusing on his work. You know, he's not sort of lost in the past. He's, he's lost in, again, as we've said, the present, this present moment. And even that song that you described, right, where the, his friends start singing a little bit to him while he's kind of helping him hold some, some leaves back so he can, like, you know, draw this, this, this quince better or whatever, his, his friend starts to sing a little bit. And if you noticed, Antonio is like, not good. Let's start over. Let's try again. He's, again, this dude that is just so concerned with the process, so concerned with making sure we get it right. Let's do it over. Let's practice it. Let's try it again. We can do better. We can be better. Like it consumes him in everything that he does. His approach to everything is just that. It's just like, let's try again. Let's do it again. It's about the journey. It's not about the destination. And for him, he's like smiling throughout that, you know, it's like, it's fun for him to, to do it over. And his friend is sort of like, what what do you mean? It's not that good. It's like, but you see it in Antonio. He's like, no, it's, it's fun for us to just keep doing it. Keep trying, keep going. Well, it's like what they talk about when they're reminiscing about art school. They say, you know, Remember what our our teacher used to say? I didn't understand it then, but I understand it now. Fuller. Fuller. You know, like, that's it. And it's just these two old painters going like, yeah. Yeah, like, I get it now. Yeah, You know, I know what you mean, you know? Make the work fuller. And that's exactly what they're doing when they're singing the song. Because, like, the last time they sing it... The friend is like, all right, I got to remember how I used to do this. And he gets like really spirited. And then their harmonizing is so much better because Mm -hmm. there's like this 
full, you know, fullness behind it or emotion behind it. And I just got to say too, like purely sentimentally, like I was getting so just emotional when they, when they were talking about going to school together, because I was thinking like, you know, I mean, it's kind of our story in a sense. I mean, I met Andy, uh, randomly, you know, in film school, in God, 2004. Uh, and I remember, you know, we've obviously often uh, reminisce about people and teachers and, and all that stuff. And of Discovering course, the world in the clubhouse. <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, those and were... it's also where we met Ryan. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Exactly. It's Ma- true. Many years later. <laughs> <laughs> but with like the si- a similar age gap in terms of yes. like the two of them, you know. It's true. But they sing, we sing the same song. That's right. The song of the gauntlet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it also reminded, you know, it invoked for me our conversation last week because there's basically, you know, like theory on late style in this movie where they talk about, they're like, yeah, you know, like. Old old painters work with a feverish intensity, and they're both like so true, bro, so true, mm-hmm. you know. And that's also like the way the film captures that intensity. I think is just so wonderful. Uh, all of the close-ups of Antonio and the way the film frames like the tree in the foreground. I mean, like yeah. the way he frantically, like you know. He's constantly just like a fucking hawk, like looking at the tree, looking at the painting, looking at the tree, looking at the painting, and then like making one line, you know, right. or whatever. <laughs> and he's so fucking intense, like. And it makes sense why he gets so sleepy at the end, you know, when he's when he's posing for uh, another portrait that his his wife is is working on in this really fascinating moment where it does feel this is like truly where the film's feels as though it's segueing into more of a, a narrative that Rithe is is sort of controlling or arranging, like trying to figure out how to cap it all off. Very Kirostami-esque. Very much so. Because like after his initial attempt at capturing the moment in time sort of fails, he like abandons the painting and returns then to just a drawing. And he tries to see like, can I capture this three tree through a drawing? And even then time just keeps marching forward and we see the leaves are starting to fall the 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 fruit is starting fruits to hit falling. The, fruits falling and it's starting to decay and even then Arethe tries to create sort of like a time lapse to capture these these decaying fruits and Antonio is like reflecting about what that light even means he's like i understand like the light from the sun and the changing of the seasons but it's this light from this camera that feels as though it's like something from dreams it's something that i don't even know how to depict on my canvas you know so it's even then antonio is starting to theorize about cinema light and controlling light for a camera and how that's different for the actual act of of painting but like you know, suffice to say, right? This is all, this is all rather exhausting for him. This whole process, as therapeutic as it was, you know, he's a bit winded. And we get this fantastic final chunk of the film where his wife is painting him laying down on a bed, and he's holding on to um, at this moment a photograph um, from Greece. And I, I really was struck by the way his wife imagines the present moment and interprets the present through her painting because he says like what should i be holding 
for this. And she's like, we can think about that later. Because at first, she just wants to capture him in the bed. And then later on, she'll add that element. So here he is, you know, trying to capture reality as close as he possibly can through graphing it in front of his eyes. And she is a little more loose about it, you know. She's like, well, we'll think about that element of the painting later. You know, let's see what we discover along the way as I'm capturing you. And is the photograph not the one of him and his friend that's brought up several times in the film? I believe because his friend brings up Greece at a certain point. Yeah, and he's like, oh, yeah, so-and-so, Conchita has a photograph of us from back in the day. I keep trying to get it from her. And he brings that up like two times. So I assume that that's, yeah, that's what that photo is. That it's like them from like the 50s or something, you know, hanging out in Greece when they were penniless artists you know? that's very true i hadn't made that connection but i think that makes it make even more sense because his reflection on the photograph is that he's dreaming about a trip going on holiday to greece and it gives it a bit more weight than thinking about you know him returning to the past returning to something that was lost as opposed to being completely obsessed with the present thinking about time that has gone by um and then all of this of course leads to him in a very citizen kane like moment falling asleep while like looking at a light refracted in like a diamond or a jewel that he drops like the you know the, the the snow globe in citizen kane well and the movie does open as a rosebud production yep. with the yeah, shot th- of the sled from citizen kane I, I thought that was funny did you did you know any i forgot to look that up if like that's just a rethay's production company this is a remake or, of citizen kane yeah i guess there's also just that element yeah well I think what I really love too in the in the the end of the film because again like this movie is is one of the great movies for me now about like work and people who work because it isn't just that we've 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 looked at at Antonio's particular you know, labor. We've we've hung out with the Polish guys renovating right. the house. I'm we've seen his wife's out. approach to her paintings. We've we've another heard from painter. his friend. Yeah, there's a another painter who's in there. There's a lot of different people who who work. And I love the 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 Polish laborers because you know we also see them grappling with process, practicing Spanish at times. You know, reflecting on the work they've done in the house. And and you know, so many people throughout the film have been staring at those goddamn quince fruits. So many people have been looking at them and they have throughout this film for us started to to reach this almost like, you know, supernatural quality. They're they're almost these like, you know, truly truly god-given gifts of of, you know, sustenance and fruit and and they take on this kind of like holy presence in the film and then at the very end once the the the, yeah, he kind of gives up everything. The 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 things are getting overripe. They're they're coming off the tree. The women people are going to make jelly out of them. Yeah, people start like picking them, and we get to the Polish guys, and they know how special these fruit have been. And the one guy says, "Have you ever had a quince?" And the other guys are like, "No." And they have this moment where they cut it up, and he's like, "What do you think?" And the guys like, "Yeah." It's all right. I'm yeah. not a big fan. It's kind of like an a, a, a unripe pear. And the other guy's like, it's a little dry, yeah, isn't it? Dry. So it's like, it's such a funny, it's right. such a charming moment for us. As I was like, just kind of tearing all that, that, that sentimentality and, 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 and mythologizing and, and, and just like puffery around these sacred objects and just being like, yeah, they're just fucking fruit, you know, like that's all they are. 
And yeah, some people will make jelly out of them. Some people are, are going to like them. Some people are going to think they're lousy. <laughs> That's all they are at the end of the day. Right. I'm glad you brought them up because I love the way that their labor is depicted when cross-cut between his painting because it really highlights the fact that these men are also just artisans, you know, like admire the work that they're doing with their hands as they're working very methodically on restoring elements of this house. Like there's so much beauty in their process as it relates to Antonio's. The film is an appreciation of craft Mm -hmm. and that comes in many, many forms. Well, we heard from Dave Kerr, the hater, earlier, but we're now going to hear a, a, a different side of Dave. This is what he wrote when he saw the film uh, in 1992. When the smoke has cleared, say, 10 or 12 years from now, this haunting, poetic, highly experimental feature by the Spanish critic-turned-filmmaker Victor Erice will almost certainly be remembered as a movie that advanced the art form by a few significant inches. In the meantime, its emotions are too modest, its focus too small, and its rhythms too patient to attract immediate attention. Yeah, the Armand White piece mentions, like, those who like Independence Day aren't really going to have the stomach for this thing. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, well, he he has a turn of phrase here, too, that I wanted to uh, inquire with you about because I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to, and I want to know what you think. Uh, And he says later in the capsule, what begins as a cool, abstract film ends as something piercingly personal with the revelation of Lopez's true motive in creating the much-fussed-over canvas. And I was thinking, what do you guys think the true motive is? Do you think it's the film itself because of, you know, the passage of camera and light? And I mean, it's almost like a Hollis Frampton uh, film for a minute, the way that like the filmmaker is now showing you their craft, right? Turning the lights on and off on the fruit that's on the ground. Or is it, as Ryan suggested, the true motive is that he needed to get really sleepy uh, so his <laughs> so his wife could... Uh, so he could finally rest and lay down. Yeah, and yeah like, he could finally be in a good pose for her to yeah. resume this painting <laughs> she'd abandoned. Call back to Bullworth, a movie just about a guy that needs to to lay down for a little bit. I mean, I think whatever it is, it's definitely not as self-evident as Kerr makes it sound. (laughs) From what I I understand, though, um, this project was also like conceived by or with the collaboration, the direct collaboration of Antonio Lopez. So that's why I think like I feel like Kerr is referring to like and yeah, the whole point was that it was a film. Like, that's the, the real motive. Like, after everything sure. that we've seen, it's like, yeah, this is just because a filmmaker and a painter, like, had a, had a cool conversation and decided to develop a film, and that's it, and you if, know? And yeah. it is. Yeah, that's true. And it is, for me, that is the perfect yeah. motivation for what we saw. It's enough. Of course it is. Yeah. 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 <gasps> Absolutely. Well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, people clearly also agreed on the gold hugo jury that it was enough of a reason both to paint and to and to award it the the top prize you know and that's it, right and it's a nice cycle that you know just like as the uh, the fruits you know we get some new fuzzy buds 
at the end of the quince tree sun, uh, just like the gold Hugo gets born at the, the beginning of the year and ripens into the, the into this beautiful statue that gets passed on year after what? year. Could you tell me really quick, because you know more about this than I do. I've never held a gold Hugo, let alone seen one. What does the statue look like? What well, is it? Could you describe it for our listeners it's, as well? It's gone through a lot of different changes. Oh, God. <laughs> this is so- the the most like common one was like a clear heavy plastic or glass that had like a golden film strip in the middle of it that had like the film festival eyes on the logo but they're like always a job i feel like every 10 years or so they get a new one they're always like spicing it up there i feel like the golden hugo changes like also, every couple of years one other question um you know why is it called a gold Hugo? I think we should at least discuss this before we. Oh man, we wrap I feel up. like I once knew, and I now I don't know. Do you have any idea? No idea. Hugo Del Oro. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though. When I was um, in Paris, I went to the Cinémathèque Française when they had that like big Truffaut exhibition, and they recreated his office in one of the like wings of the exhibition. It was like all his books and all his shit, like his desk and everything. And on the shelf was his Hugo, his like Chicago Film Festival Career Achievement Award. Was like the real one was on display in the Cinémathèque. I thought that was kind of funny because I, oh, I remember I was wearing my like. Chai Film Fest V neck. <laughs> and you're like, I've seen a Hugo. Yeah. Well, that's a Hugo if I've ever seen one. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I've seen a couple of the ones that have won and, and, and like them. What, Marsh, after looking at the list of others that have won, is there one that you've seen before that you really like? Oh, yeah. There's, there's plenty I've seen before. You know, I think there's some really good films that have, that have won the gold Hugo over the years. Uh, one that I really, really like a lot is uh, Camera Buff from 1980, the Christoph Kieslowski movie about a man that lives in a tenement building and uh, gets a film camera and subsequently basically ruins his family's life. Yeah, uh, another movie about process. <laughs> yeah, another great movie about process as this guy yeah, becomes a, an amateur documentary filmmaker. Uh, and I also, of course, uh, love... 1998's The Hole by Siming Lang, which won the coveted Gold Hugo and uh, just one of the great Siming Lang films about, uh, you know, people that live upstairs, downstairs from each other uh, with the hole in between uh, and all sorts of other zaniness. Yeah, so those two, those two, I, I, yeah, you know, big fans of those ones. Great movies. Yeah. But it's funny, too, you know, people... You know, they're really pining to win the gold Hugo. There's also the silver Hugo. There's a few Hugos at the festival. And the silver Hugo is interesting because only some years films get the silver Hugo. You know, it's if the jury doesn't deem that there's like another film worthy of a prize. They they sometimes just exclude the silver Hugo entirely. <sighs> what a rinky-dink film festival. I know. <laughs> and congrats to Stanley Kwan and Maggie Chung on their silver Hugo in Con- 1992. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll have to check out Godland. That's the movie that won this year. Big Icelandic uh, I, I'm a big Iceland thing. guy now, yeah, so yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll definitely check that out. It looks pretty cool. Well, uh, it was my turn to pick this week, but next week it is Andy's turn to pick the topic. What are you cooking up? 
Well, I feel like in uh, recent weeks, we have been dancing with one of our favorite partners in one way or another, uh, Charles Bronson. We're all big Bronson heads on the pod. In fact, in my home, I even have a, a, a large portrait of, of Bronson hanging on the wall. We're, we're big Bronson guys. And, and we were hanging out with some late Bronson recently. And it just kind of like got me thinking about other kind of, you know, again, like our episode we just did of like late period work from, from artists. And I was thinking of an actor who I have recently, uh, whose, whose late work I've become a big fan of because it's an interesting turn in his career. So I'd, uh, I know I've encouraged you both to to check some of this stuff out. So I'd like us to maybe now just to 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 have it assigned. It's going to be a, a a glimpse into the late work, the Bronson esque turn for Jean Paul Belmondo, who, as an older man, became obsessed with becoming an action movie icon more so than a a a, a very good thoughtful actor of the new wave. So. Next week, we're going to take a a focus on late Jean-Paul Belmondo's impression of Charles Bronson. (laughs) Wee wee. (laughs) As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. あの残酷な歴史。